0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: It's perhaps amazing that art historians like Robert Hillenbrand got to study the great Mongol shahnameh at all. 500 pages of Firadosi's epic poem with 300 illustrations in a manuscript whose leaves are as wide as an ordinary person's arm span. Never completed, never bound, smuggled out of Iran by corrupt dignitaries, and separated in padded out by an unsavory Belgian art dealer. But Robert Hillen's brand's work collects all these disparate illustrations and puts them together in one book, which puts the great Mongol Shaname back at the center of a sprawling 14th century Mongol empire. Robert is an honorary professorial fellow in the Department of Islamic and Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Edinburgh. Today, Robert and I talk about this Shaname and what makes the great Mongol Shaname so unique. And how the Mongol Empire gave this masterpiece's illustrations recognizable Western and Chinese influences. So, Robert, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Perhaps it's best to start by actually talking about um, the subject of your book, the the Xaname. What exactly is this epic poem? It's a remarkable artifact. It's an
0: epic poem of sixty thousand couplets. I mean, just think about the length. It's overpoweringly long. But happily, it's written in rhyming couplets so that it's quite easy to memorize. And there are millions of illiterate Iranians who know huge chunks of it by heart precisely because of its stately rhythm. Sharnanmi means Book of Kings, And basically, this is a a history of Iran that moves seamlessly from from myth to legend to history. It covers the reigns of uh, 50 kings from the creation of the world onwards. And it is a vehicle for national identity. And I don't know of a parallel for that in Western culture. It goes further than that, indeed. Uh, this is a, a, a book that was um, a poem, an epic poem that was written a thousand years ago, around 1010, and it was written in the high language of the time. But that high language has survived today. It is absolutely astonishing, if you think about that. There isn't a single European language where an epic poem written a thousand years ago. I mean, think in our own culture of Beowulf. Beowulf can't be read in its original by anybody except uh, a real specialist. It's its just a dead piece of l- literature so far as the man in the street is concerned. But the man in the street really knows about the Shahnameh, knows the stories, knows the names, gives those names to his children, it's the bedtime story um, that uh, children love, they grow up with it, the child is the father of the man, and this this book is what it is to be Iranian. So there's an immense pride in it, and the historical context is that uh, Iran was conquered by the Arabs, became Islamic, and for a while it seemed to have lost its culture. And firdosi the author of the Shahnameh, he lived in eastern Iran, he was a minor aristocrat, he decided that he would tell the story of Iran's past in a way that people would remember and would love. And that's what he did and it is still alive today in the most extraordinary way. It makes its presence felt from all across society, from fashion accessories, books for children, popular TV series, uh, alarm clocks, postage stamps, video games, you name it. It's alive and well and thriving, even though it's a thousand years old. Now, the only parallel for that that I can think of is in India, where the Mahabharata or the Ramayana are stories that people have taken to their hearts and that are alive to them and that bear a message. And they're still in an ancient language, which is understood. So the Shahname is many things to many people. It's a manual of statecraft. It's a book of adventures it's a, a moral guide, it's a history book, you can get from it what
1: you want. I'll stop there. Well, so then what's the, so then what's the great Mongol Shahnameh specifically? I mean, the book is about this, this great illustrated work, but what is this document, this particular version of the Shahnameh specifically? Well, that's
0: a good way to put it,
1: um, this particular
0: version. Um, The Sharname was principally transmitted orally, and and that means that there are many, many versions. And if you look at the 600 or so illustrated manuscripts, and I'm not even counting the unillustrated manuscripts, they all have texts that are slightly different from each other because of that oral storytelling uh, background uh, to it. So... In, in the period after Ferdowsi died, uh, we have very, very little material that survives, but there is a reference that a, a king in Central Asia in the late 12th century ordered an illustrated version of this uh, epic uh, from uh, his court painters. And the earliest surviving illustrated uh, shahnames, come from the period of uh, the post-dating the Mongol invasion of Iran, which happened under Genghis Khan uh, from um, 1219 onwards, and was total war. The Mongols uh, destroyed the Persian psyche. They created trauma, which uh, took a century to recover from. and. In due time, they became sufficiently close to want to bridge the gap between their culture, the Mongol steppe nomadic culture from outer Mongolia, and the Islamic culture of Iran, with its uh, consciousness of past history, of which the Shahnameh was uh, the, the principal expression. So, Uh, There were several illustrated Sharnamis, uh, just short of a dozen, made in the early 14th century. And among them, there is one illustrated Sharnami that stands out like a whale among minnows, the gigantic so-called Great Mongol Sharnami. Now, this is uh, a manuscript which was made in the court workshops. It's a state enterprise that created it with state artists, uh, a state location, state funds. Everything about it is not the work of a private patron, but the work of the machinery of government, if you like. So uh, no expense spared, and we don't know how much it cost, but... it would have cost the equivalent of several jet planes, you may be sure, Um, totally out of sight in so far as its splendor, its size are concerned. And let me just say a little bit about its size. Um, The sheets of paper are 80 by 60 centimeters. Well, those are just figures people won't be able to translate that into something they understand. But when open, it would have been close to one and a half meters across. So stretch out your arms on both sides, and that gives you the size of the book. And it's heavy. The book would have been roughly 10 and a half square meters in size, possibly two volumes, and it would have weighed about as much as you can put in the hold of an aeroplane, 20 kilos. So you've got to be a bit of a weightlifter to handle this book. And you ask yourself the question, when is a book not a book, when it's a mammoth book like this? So it's a display copy intended for the elite, very difficult to read because you can't handle it. It's too heavy. It would have needed uh, a stand. and in those days you sat on the you sat on the floor. So uh, it would have been difficult to get close enough to read it, because the uh, the text is written, thirty one lines a page, in in standard script, not in enlarged script. But what is new, is the number and size of pictures and the size and weight of the book. It would probably have required uh, two people to carry it in its one or two volumes. So uh, that is the great Mongol Sharnami. It's a political statement. It's a cultural statement. It may very well be an olive branch from the Mongols to the Persians, The Persians had lost the war, but they won the peace. And there's a parallel for that in the classical world, in the famous statement that defeated Greece conquered her savage conqueror, the Romans. The Greeks were weak in military terms, but strong culturally. And it was their culture that molded Roman culture. And exactly the same thing happens here between the Persians and the Mongols. So you could see the great Mongol Sharnami as a kind of act of rebellion, even though it's paid for by the Mongols and probably made for the Mongol ruler. But by this time, the Mongol ruler was a poet in Persian uh, and uh, spoke Persian very well, wrote an excellent calligraphic hand. You know, he had... He had gone
1: over to the other side, so to speak, you know i I do want to we we will talk about the illustrations in the book and and some of the 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 poems content. But before I get into that, I mean this this tome, this 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 giant book goes through a pretty traumatic experience, um which is why it's been so difficult, um as you know, in the book to kind of actually figure out to to find all these different images and put them all together. what? What actually happens to this, to this book, and why, is it, why has it made it so hard to actually study it?
0: Well, the first thing is that it was probably never completed. Uh, the obvious things that you want to know about any manuscript are not there except as probabilities. We don't know for sure where it was made, but it was probably made because it was a state enterprise. In the state capital, which is Tabriz in northwest Iran. We don't know when it was made, but probably um, in the the reign of Sultan Abu Said, the last Mongol uh, ruler um, who ruled from 1317 to 1335. We don't know who the artists were, and we don't know for sure that it was made for him. So there's There's large areas of of ignorance, and the main thing to stress here is that he died um, in his very early 30s, poisoned by his wife in a harem intrigue, and work on this manuscript stopped as if everyone had been guillotined, and so uh, the manuscript was not bound at that stage. Uh, something like up to seventy pages had been painted, although all the pages had been written, all the text had been written. But the seventy that uh, that survive are perhaps one third of what was intended. So this was uh, uh, an right out of the ordinary as a manuscript with um, more than twice as many illustrations as any other surviving uh, contemporary illustrated Sharname, and also, as I've said, so big. Now, if you think about it, a manuscript that is not yet bound is a series of loose leaves. And at some stage, those loose leaves were bound. Basically, the book disappears from history for the best part of uh, five centuries. And it surfaces in a photograph of about 1860, taken by the court photographer of the Qajar dynasty. And that shows the book bound with one of the surviving illustrations. Now it's what happened after 1860 that really mattered. Uh, In the first decade of the 20th century, Iran had a constitutional revolution and uh, chaos intervened. And people were worried about where their wealth would go. Lots of uh, rich Iranians left the country carrying portable wealth. And one of the things that happened was that the Royal Library was ruthlessly plundered The middlemen here were Armenian merchants with a wide network of supporters in Turkey, in Russia, in in Iran itself. And the story goes, I'll put it that way, that the ladies of the harem wanted Paris fashions. And one of these Armenian merchants promised to get them Paris fashions in exchange for manuscripts. And so uh, this uh, manuscript, uh, in its now bound form, was removed illegally from the Royal Library and made its way to Paris, where it fell into the hands of a ruthless vandal, uh, um, a a man of part French, part Belgian ancestry called de Morte, and he tried to sell the book to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in, uh, in New York at a price which today would not buy one of the leaves, uh, $100,000, and he didn't get it. And so he simply carved it up like pastry at a baker's. And he didn't just break up the binding and sell the leaves separately, when the leaves, when a given leaf had a picture on both sides, he split it down the middle. You can do this by attaching newspaper with glue to the margins of uh, both sides, and then in one explosive movement, tearing it apart. And with luck, you will be left with two folios instead of one, Um, and there will be a a painting on each folio. And uh, then all you have to do, which is what he did, was to fake a text, forge a text uh, on the reverse of the painted side, and sell it. And he made a mountain of money in uh, the years between 1910, when he got it, and about 1920. And um, unfortunately, uh, some of those uh, interventions went wrong and uh, we we have lost bits and pieces of uh, some of the paintings, which he found people to fill in. And in the course of time, every single one of the remaining leaves found their way into a public library. And there is now only one leaf in private ownership. But of the the leaves in the canon, that is the leaves that everybody agrees are part of the book, 58 of them, they are in 22 separate locations across the world. They're in Detroit, in Cleveland, in Boston, in Cambridge, in New York, in Dublin in Geneva, in Paris, there's one in Iran, there's another one in Kuwait, I could go on. But because the, um, the leaves are all in different places, it's been unreasonably difficult to look at this manuscript as a whole and to reconstruct it. Uh, there have been exhibitions where up to a couple of dozen pictures have been on show, but it's hard work looking really closely at one of these pictures and you have to stick your nose right into it um, when you're standing in a crowded exhibition and your feet get tired and your eyes get tired. And quite honestly, uh, it's, it becomes very hard work to maintain the level of concentration. So this book that I've just published and I must um, congratulate the publishers uh, harley publications for spending an immense amount of time and energy on getting everything right and theirs is the design theirs is the is the is the look of the book and i've been very lucky with them because the only other attempt to look at the book as a whole dates back to 1980 and was illustrated overwhelmingly in black and white and these are great paintings with a a new palette, a hugely increased palette, vis-a-vis other contemporary paintings, and of a size which just dwarfs all other contemporary Charnamé illustrations. So
1: it's had a very uh, checkered career. Let's talk about some of those paintings. You know, I mean, unfortunately, given the time we have, we probably can't talk about all the all the interesting art in in the great Mongol Shahnameh. So perhaps i might ask you to talk about one or two of your favorite scenes um, from the manuscript. I know it's a bit like asking you to pick your favorite child, um, but what what but what are maybe one or two of your favorite scenes?
0: Well, uh, there's uh, uh, there's a whole series of scenes uh, from the life of Alexander the Great. Now, Uh, Alexander the Great has had an extraordinary career uh, after his death. Um, He's known from Iceland to Indonesia, and everybody wants a bit of him. And uh, he is a a major character in the Shahnameh, although he is a foreign conqueror. By sleight of hand, the Persians um, present him as a Persian. And more than that, he becomes a model. For uh, later uh, rulers, including the um, the Mongol ruler of the time, who was called the second Alexander, and who saw himself as a reincarnation of Alexander. So uh, you you have some wonderful images of um, uh, of Alexander. Perhaps the greatest is the one of um, him lying in state as a corpse and his mother throwing herself on his body. It's just like a, an Italian pieta. And that takes me to another um, aspect of these, store, of, of these pictures, that the Mongol empire was gigantic. It was the largest empire in the history of the planet, the largest continuous landmass mass under one, uh, one dynasty's control. At its height, it stretched from the Baltic to the Sea of Japan, from East Germany to Korea. And so it's not surprising that its capital in um, the capital of the uh, sub-dynasty that ruled Iran, the Ilkhans, their capital Tabriz, became one of the great cities of the planet where the world and his wife came to uh, to, to trade, for diplomatic purposes, for missionary purposes, and so on. And so you have in this manuscript huge tracts of elements taken from French and Italian painting. The uh, conquest of pictorial space, for instance, the iconography, the way that Alexander going into the land of gloom looks like Jesus painted by Giotto entering Jerusalem. The way that the um, execution of one of the Sasanian kings, Aradavan, looks like Jesus being flogged and uh, the tree above him has a crown of thorns. And there are images of um, prophets uh, effectively crucified in a cruciform uh, picture space. Someone has been looking at Italian, Byzantine, and French painting and adapting it. And on the other side, it's full of China. It's full of Chinese mountains. It's full of Chinese furniture. It's full of Chinese costumes. The very faces... Are Chinese. So in in the pictures themselves you have this huge range from east to west and they are there in public collections across the world. So this is not a a manuscript locked away and seen only by fortunate specialists. The British Museum has, um, the British Library rather, has a, a wonderful image, which is often on show. And are half a dozen of them in Dublin. There's three in Paris uh, and uh, another three in Geneva. You, you can see these if you, um, if you take the trouble and uh, travel to some of these places. Although the best place to go to is, is probably uh, Boston and Cambridge in Massachusetts. That's, that's where there's a, a, a big lot. And an even bigger lot in Washington D.C. There's no doubt about it. Most of the great paintings from the Great Mongol army are in America.
1: So it, it's interesting you mentioned the the Western influences in um, the illustrations of of the Chamonix and the and the Chinese influences as well, um, because it seems like that would be a product of of the Mongol Empire kind of being this this. Um, this like hugely expansive uh, land empire uh, that stretches from, from one end of the continent to the other. Um, so I guess I guess, how do you think the, these artistic influences kind of interplay with the, with the politics of the, of the Mongol Empire?
0: Well, there's a particular way in, in which uh, the fortunes of the Mongol rulers of Iran are reflected in this uh, manuscript. And this is the this is a discovery made by a brilliant Persian scholar, Abulallah Sudavar, uh, who demonstrated beyond all reasonable doubt that uh, the uh, pictures contain a hidden message. And virtually all the pictures contain a hidden message. And that message has to do with the fortunes of the ruling house. Uh, from the 1220s until the 1330s. So, although Feodosi's text was written in the early 11th century, and he knew nothing about Mongols, this is a later attempt to hijack the the preferred text of all Iranians and make it serve Mongol political purposes. So, whether it's by Uh, The choice of episodes from the uh, Sharname that are given a twist by costume, by hats, for example, or by by details of the armour, or by the way that the picture is put together, uh, they are made to carry a subplot. And that subplot is continuous from one picture to the next. It called for... a a huge, deep knowledge of the Shahname to be able to see what Shahname episodes could be twisted, could be manipulated to carry a, a near contemporary Mongol meaning. So that's one way in which the manuscript is very political, but it's political in a more general sense. I mentioned earlier that it was perhaps an olive branch it it showed that the it showed a deep respect on the part of the mongol state for the key text of iranian patriotism and identity but also it showed an attempt to mongolize it partly by this subplot that i've mentioned but also by many contemporary details so the the people themselves often have Mongol hairdos, uh, they have Mongol hats with ostrich or owl feathers uh, in them. They depict Mongol funerary customs, for example, uh, Mongol ceremonies. And so it is, it is a text and an illustrated text that has changed by the, uh, that has been changed by the arrival of the Mongols and their investment in, in the meaning and the depiction of uh, the Shahnameh. That's not to deny that the, this manuscript has its own um, distinctively uh, Persian flavor. The artists were Persians, the people who chose the, the illustrations were Persians, the, the calligraphers were Persians. And I think there's a sense of teamwork here which finds expression in the pulsating energy of these pictures, their magnificent self-belief, their their deep patriotism, and their sense of, of destiny. This is a manuscript that speaks with many voices. Its pictures whisper and scream and roar, and it has a, a charisma, a power, a depth, which I think was never subsequently attained, and it's interesting that its legacy was virtually
1: zero, and that's worth thinking about. Well, you know, talking more about legacy, um, you know, I think in, in, at the end of, of your book you talk about that there are still many more questions um to be asked, many more kind of research avenues to to pursue. Um, what do you think happens next with the great Mongol shaman? Um, what questions still need to be answered? Well,
0: I think much more work is needed on the detailed uh, connection between the uh, Ferdosi's text and the image. How closely does the image uh, reflect the text? Or on the other hand, is it the case, as I believe it to be, that very often the painter goes right off on a tangent from the text and becomes, as as it were, a literary critic, a commentator. He injects new meaning into the text. So uh, that would be uh, an avenue for future research, text-image relationships, Um, and in particular, the effect of the break line. Now the break line is that part of the text which immediately precedes the illustration and therefore acts as a trigger for the illustration. And every single one of these images has to be connected uh, to its break line. I think there's room for much more work on on the symbolism that some of these paintings have, on uh, the prevalence of puns Persians are inveterate punsters and uh, that is uh, something to be looked at by someone who knows the text backwards. And then there's uh, a a lot of work that needs to be done in the laboratory, Uh, brush strokes to identify painters, Um, close laboratory investigation of the pigments because the the palette uh, used by these artists is uh, absolutely without parallel at the time. Uh, The the way that the illumination works, the the identification of the hands of the various painters, we can't can't put names to them. We, We do have names of painters who were working at the time, but there's no certainty that Uh, a a given picture is by a given painter. So these are all things that uh, need to be done uh, in the future. But above all, this is a a manuscript that speaks with so many voices that it's impossible for any one study to deal with it in appropriate depth. So I'm looking forward to to what the next generation uh, will do uh, with this amazing manuscript.
1: Well, I think that's a great place to end our conversation with Robert Hillenbrand, author of The Great Mongol Shaman*. Robert, I do actually have two final questions for you, which are, um, where can people find your work? And what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be? Oh, I know what the next
0: project is. It's uh, also a Mongol text. It's um, uh, the text of uh, Rashid Adin's Uh, world history, uh, of which the largest original uh, Arabic version is in the University of Edinburgh library, and I worked in Edinburgh for most of my career, and um, my wife and I are in the closing stages of a three-volume study of this great world history, uh, written by uh, the most powerful man in Iran in the early uh, 14th century, whose uh, imagination, whose vision stretched uh, from uh, China to Ireland, and I don't say Ireland likely because he knew that there are no snakes in Ireland. He he worked with a huge body of informants to make his world history a real world history. And that reflects, again, like like the great Mongol Shahnami, that reflects the great size and power of uh, the Mongol empire. So uh, that's uh, that's the next project. And I hope I, you know, my wife and I live long enough uh, to complete that. Uh, and as for where you can get hold of my work, uh, look at academia.edu, that will give you um, um, a lot of the work that I've done.
1: So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia. That's reviews, plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the NewBooks Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those running in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Michael Seth, author of Korea at War. But before then, Robert, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: A pleasure. Thank you very much.